You are listening to Serve, Protect, Lead, a podcast from the International Association of Chiefs of Police, where you will hear from ICP leadership and police leaders across the globe, sharing wisdom, insight, and perspective. I'm Dr. Jeff Thompson. I'm with Columbia University Department of Psychiatry, and we have some incredible guests here for our second episode. It's dedicated to the topic of suicide. And I'm not sure what you're thinking as you're listening to this, but this isn't just going to be your run-of-the-mill conversation covering the same old key points or the points that we've heard many times. We have three incredible guests that are going to share their insights, both from the research academic world and also from the world of policing. So I'm gonna introduce our first guest that we're gonna have with us is Dr. John Mann, who I also happen to work with and for at Columbia Psychiatry. And briefly, because he's got a very impressive bio, I'll, I'll share some of it with you. He's the Paul Jansen Professor of Translational Neuroscience and Psychology and Radiology. He's the former Vice Chair for Research in the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University. He's the Director of Research and Director of Molecular Imaging and Neuropathology Division at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. He's trained in psychiatry and internal medicine, and he has a doctorate in neurochemistry. His research employs functional brain imaging, neurochemistry, and molecular genetics to probe the causes of depression and suicide. Dr. John Mann is the director of the National Institute of Mental Health Conti Center for Neuroscience of Mental Disorders and past president of the International Academy of Suicide Research. Dr. Mann's published over 400 papers and edited, I believe, just over 10 books now about the biology and treatment of mood disorders, suicidal behavior, and other psychiatric disorders. In his private practice, he specializes in the treatment of mood disorders and also, I didn't want to forget the other thing, and I'm wearing the shirt today. I wear a different shirt for each episode. I have my Hope t-shirt on from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And they honored John, I believe it was two years ago, with a lifetime achievement in research for the, everything he's been doing in suicide prevention. So, Dr. Mann, it's, uh, it, honestly, it's, it's amazing. I'm glad you're taking the time to be here with us. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here with all of you, and uh, I hope uh, everybody that gets a lot out of the podcast. Well, yeah, I'm sure they will. And the, the pressure's all on you and the other two guests. So I'll just be the guide on the conversation. So we move um, our other two guests that are from experts in the world of policing. And the first one is John Morrissey. Chief John Morrissey served in law enforcement in the state of Wisconsin for 33 years. He retired in 2016 as the chief of police for the city of Kenosha. The chief currently serves as the lead for public safety task force for the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention, as well as the chair of the messaging task force for the IACP National Consortium for Suicide Prevention of Law Enforcement Officers. And honestly, Chief, it's um, it's an absolute pleasure having you here, your, your extensive career, and now what you're doing as far as suicide prevention, specifically in law enforcement. So, Chief, thank you for being here. Jeff, I truly appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak to uh, your audience uh, today, and, and I'm quite honored to be here with Dr. Mann and uh, Captain Stolzmeyer, as well as yourself, but uh, this is a topic that needs uh, a lot of discussion, and I appreciate that opportunity. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. Um, and thank you for being here again. And next, our third guest uh, is another expert in policing, Captain John Stolsteimer. He started his law enforcement career back in 97, where he was hired as the corrections officer for the Camden County Department of Corrections. He was hired by 
the Gloucester Township Police Department in 98. In 2000, he became a society improvement officer and a shift investigator. He was promoted to detective in 2003, where he served as a juvenile detective and criminal investigations detective. He served as sergeant in, on patrol from 2010 to 2013. Until then, he was named the Juvenile and Family Services Bureau Commander. In 2016, he was promoted to lieutenant. And then in 2019, he was promoted to captain and he's since served in the community services division. He's also served as a firearms instructor at their police academy where he was instructed, I believe it was back in 2002. Captain John Stolzheimer is a lifelong resident of Gloucester Township, New Jersey, and the captain studied at Camden County College and Rowan University. He's the son of a retired Gloucester Township police chief, John Stolzheimer, a junior and the brother of the late detective Tom Stolsteiner. I and honor, uh, Captain. It's a yet again a true honor to have you taking the time to be with us here, sir. Oh, no problem. Thank you, Jeff. And um, it's a real honor to be amongst uh, you all and to do something so important with uh, police work across this country. So uh, thank you very much uh, for inviting me. Yeah, thank you. And to all of you again, and just as a reminder, I don't think everybody needs it, but we know this is the IACP and this podcast is part of that. We're not here to mince words. We're here to tackle this important subject of police suicide. And let me just, as we go forward now, and I, I want to turn it to you in a moment, Dr. Mann, but to be very clear, this is a very, very heavy subject. And I think many of us have been impacted, uh, both professionally and personally, by suicide. And Ultimately, we're here. This isn't all doom and gloom. And that's specifically why I'm wearing my AFSP t-shirt. It's also a story of hope. And that's truly what we're here to do. We do have to acknowledge the awfulness of suicide, but it's also a message of hope. And I will say this again, I know at the very end, but if there's anybody out there struggling right now, whether you're police or not, it doesn't matter. You're a human being first. If you're struggling with anything, and it doesn't even have to be the thoughts of suicide, help is available and you have options. And I will say, even if you don't want to go through your agency, there's plenty of other options available and it's nobody's business, especially your agencies if you're searching for help. So with that being said, Dr. Mann, there's no list of questions that I'm going to batter you with. They, to just start us off, I want to throw to you and ask you the question, what is it that we need to know about suicide? And what are the most important things that we need to try to get across to our audience that's listened to us? Well, the first thing I want to say is that um, people who feel suicidal have suicidal thoughts are in the same place kind of as people who have a fever. You don't know yourself um, what that fever represents. It could be a minor sore throat. It could be the beginning of a galloping COVID infection or some other serious kind of um, illness. And the way you find out the answer to that is not to ask your neighbor or go online and get information or watch cable news. The way you figure out whether your fever means anything is you ask a healthcare professional like your doctor and the fact is that actually most people who um, have suicidal thoughts um, or feeling depressed, the person they're most likely to go to see twice as often 
as a health as a mental health care professional is their GP or their internist. And the best way to prevent suicide that we have right now is training GPs in how to evaluate depression and treat it more effectively. Because most of the, about um, 30 to 40% of all suicides see their GP or internist um, within 30 days of dying by suicide. And about 80% will see their GP or internist within a year of dying by suicide. So that's the portal where people go. Now, why do they do that? Well, one, one quick second, Dr. Mann, yeah. if you don't mind. So with that, first thing I think is in, why doesn't every agency have a mandatory annual physical? If, if that is, again, if that's so important, what you just pointed out, Dr. Mann, um, I, just to throw it to you first, Chief, what are your thoughts on that in connecting what I just did? I'm, and that's just me, and this is all about perspective, connecting those dots. Chief, well, jump in if you don't mind. You know, that that's a, uh, I think, a discussion that individual agencies have to have. So I, I'm all for the uh, annual mental health and physical wellness checks, uh, but there's got to be a lot of things in place. Um, one of the things, as you know, that is the stigma here, and Officers are so concerned about fitness for duty exams coming from these. So once that in, is in place, I think there's a, a process that we can use and do that. And again, we're going to talk later about other things that are out there. But I think we can get there. It's just uh, I think the communication of what that truly means, because we all have to go for an annual physical, you know, for your uh, physical health and stuff. But uh, um, and I'm just going to throw a question out to Dr. Mann on this as well. Um, what we hear frequently is people can't recover from mental health. That's just a, a falsehood, in my opinion. I think they can recover from mental health issues just as well as they can physical. That, uh, Chief, that's a terrific question. The fact is that they can recover better from um, mental health illnesses like uh, major depression uh, than they can from many physical illnesses. So the prognosis is very, very good. That, that kind of brings up a, um, a two things, uh, Jeff, that you mentioned. One is People have to have a safe space where they can get good health care. Right. Um, I know unions get involved. I've been listening to here in New York City. I've been listening to the union reps from the, uh, uh, the fire department, the NYPD, talking about COVID vaccines, which uh, where the conversation is completely nuts. But, um, but seriously, people have to have a safe space where they can, um, uh, where they can find, um, get their health care. Um, if they want to do it privately, fine. It really doesn't matter. They just have to get it. Um, we're, we're, let's face it. We in healthcare and you in the um, uh, 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 police departments um, and airline pilots, we're in a different place than somebody who's working in Wall Street or, um, or in the restaurant business or the entertainment bus business. Um, we have uh, people's lives depending on our functionality and performance. So we have, a, we have a responsibility to ourselves, our families, but we also have a responsibility to the public um, to be fit for our job. Um, and uh, all of those three things, any one of those three things is important enough to get good health care. And, um, and you need to get good health care. The reason I brought up depression right at the start of this conversation 
is that if you ask why people are dying by suicide in the United States, and that applies to the uh, to the police departments all over the country, that applies to all the doctors, by the way. We have the same problem that the police department has. If you're a doctor or you're a police officer, your biggest risk of death is dying by suicide. That's our biggest threat. And uh, it takes a long time to train a good police officer. It takes a long time to train a good doctor. Um, and um, and it's just a tragic thing when anybody in you know in those fields uh, die by suicide. So, what is well, the yeah. So, Doctor Man, just one quick thing on that because I think for given the four of us, we're familiar with the statistics. But just to be very clear for some of our listeners that aren't familiar with them. I believe now it goes back four consecutive years, the data that Blue Help has collected on police officer suicides. More in those four consecutive years, more police officers have died by suicide compared to being killed in the line of duty. And I say, again, just slightly different, we're killing ourselves more than the bad guys are killing us. And that's awful. It is absolutely awful. And honestly, I think it's the, the reason I said it's only the past four years, that's when they started um, that group in particular collecting the data. But I'm, they, Captain, I wanted to just jump to you real quick before I throw it back to Dr. Mann, because they, that conversation on depression is crucial and everybody has to hear what he has to say on that. But I just wanted to get um, if you have any um, insight so far, Captain. No, I just um, I just wrote down. I loved what Dr. Mann said about uh, we are we have a responsibility to our public, which is um, absolutely right. We we should be as fit as we possibly can. And I was having a conversation with my brother-in-law the other day who works for a heating and air conditioning company. And there may be 40 or 50 employees. Uh, and he told me that he's mandated to meet with a counselor once a year. And I mean, that's a manager at a heating and air conditioning company. Yet I, as a police officer, am not mandated to meet with any mental health professionals. And I just, I'm blown away by that. And I think it's crazy. And um, with the stats, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. We are killing ourselves in record numbers and they say on average, it's anywhere from three to four times more than a line of duty deaths. Uh, and the problem is, is that New Jersey just started a couple of years ago mandating reporting uh, for officer suicides. And I know in 2011, uh, I lost my brother and he is not a statistic anywhere. Nobody knows he died by suicide. He wasn't counted. And, and that is my concern is how many officers across this country are dying by suicide and we don't know a true number. And uh, it really is an epidemic. Yeah, and Captain, I know um, as of the time when we're recording this, uh, the, the FBI just came out with their, um, they're collecting data now on yeah. officer suicides, but it's not mandatory. It's uh, voluntary for agencies. So it sounds like what you just said in Jersey, it's mandatory that each agency contributes to that? Yes, uh, when Governor Murphy uh, enacted the laws for, um, for the uh, program for resiliency officers and all that, Part of that was mandating uh, any reporting uh, of officer suicides. Yeah, great. Thank you for adding that. And I know that makes me think of yet again, one more topic I want to throw to you a little bit later, Dr. Mann, about psychological autopsies, because Captain, what you said, I just want to stress that again. These are not just statistics. They're not abstract numbers. These are real lives, brothers and sisters of ours that have died by suicide and we owe it to them to find out what happened and to use that information to try to prevent it from ever happening again. But before we go uh, talking more about psych autopsies, Dr. Mann, I, I wanted to throw it back to you because you were starting on how important it is. And I've heard you say this before elsewhere, 
um, connection depression with suicide. So back to you, Dr. May. Yeah, so um, um, we don't actually have very good data at all on uh, police officers. We have even less information on doctors. And here are two groups where suicide is the leading cause of death. Uh, you know, most of them until I get older. So uh, that's a big problem. That right there tells you that we're not doing a good job of looking after ourselves and we need to do a better job. Now, what we do know is that when you look in Western countries and you do what Jeff's talking about, you do these psychological autopsies, which is basically investigating by interviewing families. This is just good police work. What, is, what are the factors that lead to the suicide? Everybody has a limit and starts to break down after a while and people develop depression. PTSD, um, begin abusing painkillers um, and other stuff like that, to drink too much. These are their ways of coping in the absence of getting help. And I love this thing that I saw in a little book, um, my daughter-in-law's place the other day. It said, uh, courage is asking for help. Courage is not putting up with what you're suffering. Courage is going out and acting on asking for help. And I think that's the, that's the big message. You can ask for help and help is available and help works. We do know how to treat mood disorders and depression. We can make people better. Just think of it. It's like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, being overweight, except we, have a, we do a much better job of treating depression than we can treat uh, people who are overweight. Uh, we're just much more successful at it. And um, you can really help people a lot and, and people get a lot better and become their old selves again. Um, well, right, but... Dr. Mann, just it's so yet again that I agree with what you're saying. So it's not that I'm looking to argue with you, uh, but I, I the, what comes up to my mind is what the chief said earlier. It and this is where it's whether policing or um, doctors and physicians that that concept of stigma, right? Because I truly wholeheartedly agree with you. Courage is reaching out for help. Um, our first episode, we that's part of our working definition of what resilience is. And the second part of resilience is reaching out for help when it's needed. But for a quick moment, Chief, I know it's a it's a loaded question, throwing it back to you, but we know from our experiences and, you know, from your experiences, the connection between stigma and not seeking help. Right. And I don't I'm not asking you to give us the answer to fix it or not, because just clearly stating the problem, how often agencies that have so many resources Yet, unfortunately, when we find out somebody died by suicide, they didn't use the resources. And it's like the opposite of field of dreams. Just because you build it doesn't mean they'll come. And I don't know if you um, I, I, I wanted to check in on what, further what you have there, Chief. Yeah, you are absolutely correct. Um, we can put the programs in there, but if we don't provide so the officers realize that there's hope at the end of it, that they can return to duty um, and get them out there. So the, the stigma and I... Uh, one of the things we really need to focus on is changing the message. Most of us that have been in law enforcement for years, the message we see are an individual with a gun or on a bridge or with a rope. Those are all negative messages. We have to get way away from that. Um, we have to get to the point that the officers understand that. We'll talk about peer later, but um, it takes a long time for those to get there. You know, uh, the psychological autopsy, I think that data is so important to really move this needle forward and you know, start seeing these numbers come way down. So, but uh, there's a lot of things that the IACP and others are doing that I think if departments would spend time looking at it, they're going to find their officers 
in a much better place. You know, as uh, the captain had said earlier, we all need to be healthy. If you don't have a healthy officer, you don't have a healthy community. It's it's that simple. Yeah. And, you know, and just for me to vent my frustrations real quick, I, I wonder, and I don't have the answer, but hearing you validate saying how important it is for the psych autopsy, what was it? Um, I think a couple of years ago, we had an event at NYPD headquarters co-hosted with a police executive research forum. And one of the key takeaways in Dr. Mann was there and he spoke on it, the importance of the psych autopsy. Yet, I, don't, I honestly, I don't know how much ground we've covered, if any, since then. And it truly is very frustrating from that side of it. But realizing, and I'll speak for all of us, nobody said this was going to be easy. And we don't, we don't choose the easy route, but it, it can be pretty frustrating and hard sometimes. Captain, um, with... Your your take on on that and whether and before I throw it to you too is the psychotopsy from what Dr. Mann was saying as well too is I I'm not an advocate and I know he wasn't saying it either it's not just anybody that can do it you need good investigator type skills but you also need a very deep knowledge of suicidology because you can't have somebody saying after the first interview the reason the officer took his life is because his wife left him now that could have been part of what of the troubles going on in his life were, but we, we know, and just for clarity for everybody, there's no single cause to suicide. It's very, very complicated, but I, what are your thoughts, Captain? No, I, I completely agree. And, and I probably spent over half of my uh, career in the detective division, and I really, truly loved investigations, but I just think a psychological autopsy is so difficult. And I am not um, as educated as, as you, Dr. Jeff and Dr. Mann and, um, I just, because I know in like my brother's case and some other uh, suicides we had throughout our county that I was somewhat aware of is it's so difficult because a lot of times that person doesn't voice uh, what is actually going on with them. And the most we can do is look to the survivors to try and gather a picture of what this officer was going through prior to the, prior to their suicide. And um, I just think it's really difficult. I, I love the idea. I just think it's going to be a difficult task uh, to complete. Well, yeah. And by the way, we don't have to come up with that answer by the end of this podcast. So sure. as much pressure, I'm going to look to you guys for answers. That one's not on any of you. I hope, though, in all seriousness, I hope this does spark the interest of more people that are listening to this and people of your ranks. And then also on the academia side, like with Dr. Mann, to figure how do we converge and how do we turn the speed up a little bit quicker? But it's not just the psychoautopsy. There's plenty of other things as well. But I wanted to throw it back to you, um, Dr. Mann, in the whole connection. I'm not sure if there was more that you wanted to add to it, that, that understanding of depression and its impact on suicide or other mental health conditions. Yeah, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, just to add something to what the captain said, which is important. If you've got a um, complicated homicide, you don't ask a doctor to go in and figure out who's the perpetrator. You don't send a doctor to the crime scene and then they go around door to door and do all those things that we see on TV because the doctor's completely unqualified. When your, your officers have seen you know, a hundred or a thousand crime scenes, they go in there, they see stuff immediately. They see people's in the re reaction around them. They make, you know, they're assessing a lot of stuff, you know, because they've got a huge amount of experience. When we do psychological autopsies, we know a lot of the answers that people give and we look at their expressions and how they're responding. Just as you can tell 
you know, you've got a pretty good sense if a witness uh, that you're interviewing is telling the truth or trying to hide something. We have a pretty good sense in the same context in these psychological autopsies. So we know how to sort of handle the questions, when to back off, when to go forward, you know, when to sort of take a different angle. It's a skill set. And so the people doing psychological autopsies ought to be trained for that. They're good at it. But why do we know that this is important? Because we know from all these other studies in different settings, in different people, different professions, that the number one killer in terms of, su of suicide is an untreated depressive illness. That's the number one. That's 60% of all suicides right there. And comorbid alcohol use, misuse, comorbid use of uh, drugs like sedatives and painkillers just increase the risk. Um, and then PTSD is very important in people whose work increases the risk for PTSD, which is people in the military, people in the police departments, and now doctors. And, yeah. and and people working in emergency rooms through the COVID era got a lot of PTSD because they never saw so many people dying in front of their eyes before. So they're really stressed out and not in such good shape now. So for, for a quick question of clarity, Dr. Mann, um, with what you shared with the statistic, as far as 60% of people that die by suicide, roughly 60%, give or take, are those, did you say they have underlying symptoms of major depressive disorder or were they diagnosed? Or that's where I know sometimes people aren't really sure um, what that means. 60% of them are found to have had a major depressive episode in the context of the suicide on the psychological autopsy. But of the people right. that have had major depression, PTSD, alcoholism, whatever it is, in the US who died by suicide, about 78% of them, according to the CDC statistics, were untreated. Yeah, that means that um, uh, they most of them didn't seek help. And if they did seek help, the person missed the diagnosis. Right. And then it, it turns back in that awful word of stigma because what a police and again, as you mentioned, doctors, physicians, but I'll just talk about police for the moment. Because of stigma, they won't seek help. So what do they do? They self-medicate. And what's our drug of choice? Alcohol. And you don't need to be a doctor listening to this. If you have anxiety and depressive symptoms and you use no, I didn't say abuse. You use alcohol. It makes those symptoms worse and then it pushes people even further down that downward spiral and it's it's absolutely awful but it, another point of clarity for people listening if you listen to the statistics that dr man just said and then i want to throw it to the chief and captain as well so that means the majority of people that have died by suicide had depressive symptoms but importantly the majority of people that have depression do not die by suicide so my take and i just wanted to tell me if i've got this right dr man that means how about instead of constantly looking for suicidal signs, maybe we want to look for depression signs in people because it's not just about suicide. It's about making sure our officers are mentally healthy. And that sort of seems a bit more of a wider net to try to provide services and support to people. Does that make sense, Dr. Mann? Yeah, this comes back to what the chief said, 
which is um, we need to send the right message. Um, we need to send a message that this is about health. Health is important to the person who's got the problem, and health is important to the to the organizations, the overall functionality, and of course the public, which are relying on us. You know, doctors and, and police officers are very similar. Doctors do not like to respond to questions about their mental health because, like police officers, you don't want to lose your gun. The doctor doesn't want to lose their medical license. You can get your medical license suspended if they think you're suicidal in a lot of places. Um, right. And then they ask you a lot of questions if, you're, um, if you say you're on antidepressants because they're suspicious about how well you're functioning. And so the last, you know, so, you know, um, it, it's the same exact problem that people are afraid because they, haven't got, they don't feel they have a safe space to go and talk freely and get help. And part of the reason they don't try is that they don't think there's any point. They don't think they're going to get any better. But uh, we have to convince people that there's a positive message here. This is, this is, this is about getting better. Well, right. And I, I think the first thing that I think of, which in my law enforcement role, I've played a role in developing and helping promote the, the, the concept of peer support, right? And Chief, you mentioned that earlier. So my question to you, Chief, and then it's the same question to you, Captain. So I guess, Captain, you got the advantage. You'll have more time to come up with an epic answer because I'm going to the Chief first. Chief, well, you've got the higher rank. It's only fair that I throw it to you first. There's no one piece to this puzzle. Right. Again, suicide is very complicated. If there's no single cause to suicide, there's no single way to prevent it. But as far as as Dr. Man saying with that message of I, I don't want to say the word convince people, but maybe if you want to start off, how do we go about it? And can you sort of explain why you're a firm believer in the value of peer support? So there was a study done by the FOP that the majority of officers that are suffering, the first people they'll go to is their family. However, in a lot of cases, the family are what are causing some of the stressors or depressive things. The next one is their fellow officers, the peer support team, the individuals that are there, and they go there for a lot of stuff other than suicide. When you had mentioned earlier about you know, looking for signs of suicide, well, that's that's really the last of the training because the, the signs of suicide are, you know, are you going to take your life today and a few other things. It is all of the symptoms up to that that we're looking for and asking for. Um, and I've found certainly in my department, but in others that the peer support, because again, cops trust cops. I mean, that's just the way it is. Um, and doctors probably trust doctors, but we want that message from somebody you trust is what breeds that it's true. Our peer support team started after my two suicides, and it probably took four years before people actually trusted it and believed in it. And now it's one of the most robust. In fact, we do all the training in Wisconsin for it. But uh, part of that is the Dr. Soto is messaging. Let's, if we change that message to a message of hope, self-care, resilience, you're going to get a lot farther. And that's what the peer team brings is they, they bring their message. They're you know, they're really there to listen and to refer. Um, they're not therapists. We're not the one doing that. And uh, we make sure that our teams are trained that way. But, uh, you know, the majority of people in whatever profession, quite frankly, and then I would say once you're past it, if you're referred, you need to make sure that the therapist is occupationally prepared for it. You know, law enforcement, make sure they understand it. We talked about the psychological autopsies. 
they need to, to know that, but they also need to know law enforcement, I think, when you're doing those. So uh, you are right. It is, it is not one single issue, and we should not make it as one single issue. It's, we've got to talk about them all as we go forward. Right, and I can't help but think sometimes, and people, and when I say people, sometimes it's it, police executives, they want a quick fix to it, and they, it's just, it doesn't work like that. And sometimes if they try to make what it seems like are these quick fixes, all you're doing is turning off your workforce, and they know that it's one of those mandatory trainings, say you watch the video, the suicide prevention video, and then say, all right, there, we covered ourselves. And I know the two of you are not subscribers to that. And that's why we have you here sharing this with us, because I, I, don't, I don't want to associate with people like that. So in, in, when you, you talk about the peer support, that model, like in, in some of the way, the process that we use is ask, listen, encourage, follow up, right? Because quite sometimes it's too much for the peer support member. And that doesn't mean they failed. It means they did a good job and they can connect them. And you brought up the other thing too, is yet again, how it's not easy. I know from my experiences, helping police officers, sometimes they don't get the right therapist that they don't click with. And then it's just another setback. And it's just, it takes, and this is, a, I'm going to throw it to you in a second, Captain, but I don't, if anybody listened to this and that's involved, we don't dig too much into it in this episode, but this is draining and this is exhausting. And now I'm not talking about the person in crisis. I'm talking about the peer support member. And we have a big model. Number one, if you're going to be part of peer support, you've got to be peer support to yourself at all times. And that term self-care, and that's not fluffy pie in the sky stuff. That's hardcore. And how else are you supposed to help other people if you're not starting with yourself? Um, I had another question for you, Chief. I can't think of it offhand, but I'm sure it's really tough. So I'm going to come back to you. But while I work on it, I bought you some time, Captain. What, do you, um, what are your thoughts? Um, how, do, how do we move things? And, and anyway, by the way, before I throw it, I know that there's a lot of great stuff being done in your agencies and other agencies. Like I, I think LAPD was one of the first ones that have peer support and they have a really robust program. And chief, you mentioned the FOP, Sherry and the work that she's doing there as a leader with the FOP across this country. We're trying to vet, by the way, healthcare providers to make sure that they know and understand policing but then also a national suggested model of peer support. So there's definitely bright moments. And I know what it was. It wasn't even a question, uh, Chief, but when I was thinking of peer, um, the psych autopsy I, and when Dr. Mann was talking about it, it was more of that idea of it's not just the doctor experts that I think should be doing the psych autopsies. It truly needs to be a team concept where we have like captain in your experiences, you as um, the detective investigator, pairing up and working with a small group of people that have the detective investigator knowledge, but then also the suicidology knowledge of the researchers. It's not one or the other. It truly needs to be both. But Captain, yeah, what do you have? Yeah, so I guess we're going back to uh, peer support. But now, great point. If we want to, it's up to you. It's totally open mic for you right now, wherever you want to go with this. <laughs> no, I had a, a couple of good comments. Um, really good talk so far. But uh, I believe in the uh, peer support in our agency. Uh, a friend of mine, as a lieutenant in the neighboring department, Bill Walsh, he's working towards his doctorate, and he is really big into uh, preventing police suicide. And he started up a peer support system through a couple agencies in our county where we have all different ranks, all different duty assignments. So if we had a canine officer in our town that was going through some issues, wanted to talk to maybe a fellow canine officer that he doesn't know to try and get some guidance or whatever, he can reach out through this 
this uh, organization that he created. It was a multi-agency peer support uh, organization. And he can talk with another canine officer who maybe knows the issues he's going through or has felt the same kind of uh, thoughts in the past. And um, just, I think peer support is so powerful. I think it gets overlooked sometimes, but like I know when I started, I was probably spending more time with my fellow officers than I was with my family. And I think Chief made a good point that, you know, cops trust cops and we do. We know what we're all going through and maybe we've been in a situation before that we're reaching out for help for. And I just think that peer support is, is so important that way uh, just for the connection that we have as brother and sister officers. As far as the safe space that Dr. Mann was talking about on a couple of different times, um, that is uh, truly a, a very important uh, thing that we need to have. It's somewhere where officers feel safe to go and discuss their issues with someone. And I, I know we, as a department, we use our one of our local hospitals, Cooper, uh, we use their employee assistance program and they have counselors that are dedicated um, to police officers and fire officer, fire uh, fighters, first responders, to where we can call them up at any time. And, you know, the first several number of uh, visits or um, phone conversations are free. Uh, they don't release any information to our police department. All we know at the end of the year is that so many officers use their services. Uh, they don't tell us their names. They don't tell us what they talked about. Even if we have an officer who is going through some issues and we want them to reach out to EAP, we'll mandate them to contact them. And even with that, the most they'll tell us is that officer so-and-so uh, participated in conversations with EAP and, and that's pretty much it. They don't tell us what they talked about, you know, or anything like that. Um, so that is one step we're taking towards that safe space, uh, Dr. Mann. And I think I know in our department is we're seeing increasing numbers every year. We're, we're approximately 134 officers. And it looks like every year we have maybe 10 to 15 officers utilizing that service, which is incredible because I know 20 years ago when I was a newer officer, I wasn't even considering that. So uh, we're making great strides in our county and our state, you know, and I'm just hoping that the rest of the country catches on uh, who may be behind us. So. Well, that's the thing that I think of, and I know, we go to these conferences across the country and I think sometimes we, not we personally, but we as in a profession in law enforcement, we all listen to these great presentations all the time. And then that makes us wonder, well, how the hell there's suicides then? Because it seems like every agency is doing the perfect model or the perfect program. And it's that idea of sometimes stepping back and saying, yeah, we're, what more needs to be done or what needs to be done in a smarter way? Because you look at that captain, the flip side, when agencies develop peer support programs, right? Well, first of all, and I like how you pointed it out because I try to think of what are, what can all the naysayers be saying right now? And you hit the nail on the head with one of them, the agency that says, oh, we're too small, we can't do peer support. Okay, then team up with your local other agencies and have mm -hmm. a regional tier support, uh, peer support, right? Exactly. But then the, what, what I've heard in the past is when an agency unfortunately has that um, suicide, they, they try to then figure out what's wrong. And they say, oh, peer support doesn't work because we had a suicide. And I say, how's that fair to say? Yeah. And it, 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 again, people try to bring it to such a, a small, specific um, reason. It's just anyway. So I want to throw it back to you, Captain, and then to the chief. And then we'll come back to you, Dr. Mann, or jump in after you hear them share this. Captain, 
and for the listeners right now, and then, by the way, regardless of rank, we're, we all need to be leaders in suicide prevention. And it doesn't matter what your title is. We're all brothers and sisters in blue. And at the end of the day, we take off our uniform and we go home to our family. So we've got to bring back that human aspect. It, well, you know what? Maybe if you want to add something first on this, that's where I think we don't speak enough about how important peer support is because everybody wants the quick snap of a finger culture change. I truly genuinely think the more peer support members we have in our agencies, the more people that you surround yourself with like-minded people. And that's how I think we chip away at the stigma. And I know the chief mentioned that earlier, it took um, like four years for him to feel like, I think he said with the peer program to really get on its feet running. But that's truly, I think, part of that culture change, promoting that mindset of, yeah, I took care of myself and that's not weak. Or yeah, I went and got help. And it's that old school mentality that's just toxic to the individual, but then it spreads. And peer support isn't going to fix it all by itself, but it creates that counter. That's an important message. But so, Captain, first to you, then to you, Chief. Short term, long term um, tips or suggestions for um, agencies, but also maybe even individuals listening. What can they do once they stop listening to this whole episode? Um, stay with us to the end of the episode. But what can they do in the immediate future and long term? Captain, you're up first. I think uh, I, I think immediate future, they, they have to start something. If you're not doing something. Uh, then you have to come up with a plan or some kind of program to start right away. And I think peer support is the easiest. And I think you're absolutely right, Jeff, is that the more officers you have that are peer support members, the more healthier, the more healthier department's going to be. As I know, um, our peer support members in our department are, when you're talking mentally, they're very healthy. Uh, they're guys that know how to take care of themselves, uh, self-care, uh, they know the resources, they're not afraid to reach out if they need to, and they truly believe in the peer support system and suicide prevention for law enforcement. And I think uh, that is definitely the one thing that you should start right away, and it's the easiest. It's uh, very cost-effective. Uh, it won't cost you hardly anything. Um, and then you can just uh, compound on that and uh, start creating more programs or start getting involved with other agencies and like you said, uh, we have some agencies near us that, that are maybe 15, 20 officers, and they absolutely could jump into this multi-agency peer support system that was created and have the resources right there for them, even though uh, they don't have that many officers in their department. And then um, long-term, uh, the one thing I would really like to see, and I haven't seen, I haven't seen it in our state yet, and I don't know if anybody's trying to push it, but I think the mandatory counseling once a year uh, at the least, is I think you need to get in. And um, like when I teach a suicide prevention, I, I equate ourselves to either, you know, like a desktop computer, laptop computer, or a cup, where eventually uh, you get filled up with everything that you're holding in and you have to let it out uh, or else your CPU starts running slower or your cup overflows and you freak out on people um, and you have some kind of incident. So I almost think that you need that at least once a year where you're going and talking to a professional and you're venting and you're getting all that ugliness that you're keeping out inside out and you can start fresh. And uh, I think long-term that's our biggest goal here in our department is to start something like that where we can mandate people to go to a counselor once a year. And if they talk about stuff, they talk about stuff. If not, at least we're starting that. And maybe at some point they will have that conversation. Excellent. Great tips. Thank you for sharing that. 
And I hope it sparks more conversations, but not just conversations, conversations to lead to actions. So uh, thank you, Captain. Chief, how about you? I agree there with uh, the captain. I just want to throw a couple of statistics in for those that are listening. Um, so this was a 2018 uh, survey from officers that had used peer. 90% of those who utilized peer found it helpful. 80% indicated they would use it again, and 90% stated that they would recommend it. So while we've given our reasons why, statistically, it, it shows the peers there. Um, I just want to say about peer as well, and uh, the captain had talked about the canine to canine. If there's any chiefs or executives listening to this, you need executive to executive, chief to chief, uh, captain to captain. Um, you got to get all ranks involved because, uh, again, as a chief, you, you don't feel like you can talk to anybody in your department, and, and perhaps you shouldn't, but uh, there are a lot of, lot of resources out there. So when you do that, um, the peer support is certainly the easiest, I think, to get up and running. But I think other things is just to start the conversation, because there's a lot of things that the officers don't know, is work on the policies and procedures together as a group, whether it's the union, new people, on what the protocols are going to be. If there is a, an officer that's out on mental health leave or happens to take their own life, um, those things are important. They start the conversations. Um, starting a chaplain program, and I'm going to clarify that. I think all chaplain programs should be based on faith, not a particular religion. Um, what we're looking for in the chapter is that there's faith, that there's a higher being. Um, those are good too. And it gets out in the community. Um, you know, we have a Jewish chaplain, we have a Catholic priest, we have all kinds of, and then there's, there's those that will want them, but I'm surprised how many will use the chaplain's program again, because it's not religious. It's just a faith in something higher. Um, one of the things that every department should start doing, and this was kind of what the captain said and you, Jeff, is the more you have there, every field training officer and every frontline or first-line supervisor should have the training. They should have go through the peer training. Even if they weren't a peer officer and now they're a supervisor, I say put them through the peer training so they know what the peer officers do, how they act, what the rules are, um, and eventually those frontline supervisors become the lieutenants or the captains and perhaps chiefs and um, but that's how you get everything started. And, you know, if you're a larger department, um, we just did this in Kenosha, we're going to embed a therapist in the department. Now, again, we're 218, we're a lot larger, um, but those are things you can do. Again, we're going to have them off-site, so it goes back to Dr. Mann's safe place, you know. Uh, but we're spending a, a lot of money just because we realize police and fire, for that matter, uh, the things that they've gone through need this assistance. So, Again, I would go back to uh, starting your department, changing that message. Let's, let's make it positive. Um, if you see hope at the end of it, um, I look at it kind of like the Boys and Girls Club. A lot of the kids that go there, they don't have a lot. But if they walk out of there that there's hope, that they're going to have something, um, you've changed their lives all the way around. Uh, yeah, your shirt is perfect. Um, <laughs> but that really is a very strong message is hope. You know, I... I I've said when I was on the Boys and Girls Club board, if these kids lose hope, they're, they're lost then, and that, that's a hard thing. But, uh, you know, again, I, I think if you as a chief involve all of your officers into this, get them talking about it, um, I'm going to put a plug in for the IACP here. 
the National Consortium on Preventing Law Enforcement. They have a great suicide prevention toolkit. It is a great starting point. Um, I know that the ICP will send you one, whether you're an ICP member or not, because their goal is like yours is, uh, and everybody on this call is to uh, reduce those numbers. Um, zero suicide might be uh, the wrong message because we'll never get there, but we should still tr strive for it, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. And just a reminder to our listeners on the IACP webpage for this episode, we have many, many um, links to resources at the bottom of the page, and we encourage everybody to, to take a look at them. Dr. Mann, I want to come back to you because we, can't, we keep hearing an emphasis on peer support. And again, it's a piece of the puzzle. I think it's a very big piece. And there's various benefits to it. But it's also almost sometimes I call it like it's preaching to the choir. You got to make sure your choir is sharp. And that's where it's not just one-off training for peer support. They need refreshers and they need to be put to the test to make sure they're using the skills in the proper way. And you don't want them saying the wrong things. But here's the thing, Dr. Mann, where I want to segue to you is, again, with peer support, they've got to be a peer to themselves first. And this is where it comes back to, you know, with the research that when someone feels suicidal, or hopeless and helpless. They feel like things are out of their control. And this is where I think about a peer support member, they're controlling what they can to try and help others. But let's take it even a step more towards the individualistic side. While we're hearing what the chief is saying and the captain, we're talking about agency-wide, but we've got a lot of listeners listening right now. Well, I hope we do. Well, I'm just gonna assume we've got a lot of listeners listening right now that aren't chiefs, that aren't captains, and they're of other ranks. It's resiliency is not just on the agency, it's also on the individual. And it's not one or the other, it's both. So I wonder if you can dig a little bit deeper into maybe any evidence-based tips or just insights that you could share as far as personal resiliency to help keep them, I, I guess, handling the daily stuff that a cop deals with every single day. I mean, our goal is we would like people not to be um, uh, worn down that they get sick. So there are things that you can do to um, help yourself, self-care things that help you um, function better. They are things like obviously getting enough sleep. That's a big one. Um, I mean, getting enough sleep without taking um, a few drinks um, or some uh, sedatives and stuff like that. Uh, getting enough sleep is important. Um, so organizing your day, you know, don't end up, you, you know, I'm not, you know, finish screen time and then think you're going to get full of sleep right away. Screen time is a bad way to segue into sleep. You're much better off, shut off the screen, spend half an hour um, reading a book or talking to um, your partner or something, you know, it's better than, uh, way better than watching um, the screen. Um, good sleep uh, is very important. Um, eating the right food. Do not, um, you know, rely on uh, fast food, takeout food, stuff like that, too much coffee um, as your uh, basic daily diet. Think about what you're eating. Heard a very interesting uh, analogy from um, a um, sports person who said, um, you wouldn't put, um, you know, if you're driving a Maserati, you're not gonna put um, the lowest grade fuel um, you can get at the gas station into your Maserati, right? You're gonna put, you know, um, you know whatever it is, the top, uh, top octane uh, fuel in there. You want your Maserati to have the best stuff. Treat yourself like your Maserati. You know, put good food in, your, in yourself. Um, 
And then the other thing is everybody should have a list, a kind of a bucket list of weekly things that they think are fun, that they enjoy doing. That list, you have to keep putting that list in front of your face. Do things every week that you enjoy doing. Um, you know, uh, I used to enjoy watching the Giants play football. Now I don't do that anymore because it's too depressing. But I'm serious. This thing about, you know, find something that you enjoy doing and go make sure that you do a few of these things every week so that you're having fun. And that is what sustained a lot of us um, through COVID-19. You know, we've had a very dark period since March of 2020. That's a very long time to be on a tour of duty. And the, the police departments have gone through a very difficult phase. Nothing more, you know, policing has not been like, you know, an appreciated job in a lot of places for a while now. And being a doctor hasn't been appreciated. You know, um, one of my research fellows, a beautiful young lady, dedicated, had her ID on in the subway and some idiot came and punched her in the head and said something about uh, killing people in the hospital and telling that everybody that's a COVID death. Just punched her in the head. So, you know, now we're told we're not allowed to get on the train or the or the subway while you're wearing your ID. Anyway, I, I, I got to I say, I digress. Sleep, food, <laughs> fun, be nice to yourself, relax, learn to relax. Try relaxation exercises. It, for a lot of us, it's a new sensation. We've forgotten what it's like to be relaxed. These are all good things. But just remember, every time, every now and then, you're going to get people get sick, even when they do all those right things, those resiliency things. They, they're only, they're, they're a great, they'll improve quality of life and so on and so forth. But every now and then, people really get sick and then they peer support, fantastic. Talk to somebody that looks like you, thinks like you, lives like you. If they tell you you need help and how to get it, listen to them. Do it. Yeah, excellent. Thank you, Dr. Mann. And I see um, we're getting close towards the end here. So I'm going to throw a question to each of you, rapid fire. And something we have all our guests do is participate in a resilience practice and I asked them to participate in a cognitive reappraisal type one, but we're not doing that because I want to mix it up and I'm trying to catch the three of them off guard. We're doing a different one on the spot. I'm going to ask all three of you a question. I'll start first. But before I ask the question, again, what Dr. Mann just shared, I think of maybe, I said this on the first episode, I'll say it again, maybe 10 years ago, Jeff, that was a bit more cynical and I hear the things he's saying and sleep, yeah, eat, yeah, it's so hard to find a good meal. It's really hard to sleep. That's the naysayer. That's the thinking. And I'm glad I don't think like that anymore. Because if all you look for excuses, they'll be everywhere, preventing you from looking after yourself. And we can't afford that. We have to do what we can as individuals, first and foremost. And that shouldn't be a, a question. It should be a must. And I like how you said that list. So my question to each of you is, I'm Jeff. And we've got three Johns here and we all have wonderful titles that we busted our butt to get. But at the end of the day, we go home and we're human beings with first names and last names. So my question right now are to the three Johns and I'll go first. I want to know two things that you do in your life that have nothing to do with your work that just bring you joy. 
And this is my thing for anybody that's looking for these silver bullets or some unheard of resilience practice. It truly is what Dr. Mann said. It's the little things and just actually doing them. And first and foremost, it feels good feeling good. And it doesn't make any of the troubles, the issues in your life disappear. One, it's just giving you a break from that. And you're thinking about something good. Two, what does the research show? That helps you better able to handle stressors going forward. So two things that I like to do that have nothing to do with my work at Columbia Psychiatry or in policing are, I should have planned this before I went on, but all right. First one, I enjoy running and I laugh because I know somebody else might bring that up as well. I enjoy running and I enjoy watching dumb comedy TV shows with my family, like The Office, and just having a good belly laugh at stupidity. And it, it, it's just fun laughing and then hearing other people laugh. Uh, nobody knows what order I'm going in, so we're going to go to Chief John first. So I would say the, the things are, most of my friends that I consider friends are not work-related. Um, so when I go out, I don't talk about work, no matter whether it's here at the city or there. But my grandkids, I... Uh, Talk to them every morning and every night. They're four and six, and I'll tell you, they're probably smarter than me, but they make me laugh, and they are the highlight of my uh, life at this point in time. And the other thing is, interestingly enough, um, I don't know what you call it out where you guys are, but me TV, I watch uh, Green Acres and Hogan's Heroes at night before I go to bed. I haven't watched a national news program in years, so... Um, Chief, you know, people I, are going to have to Google the person who does the two TV shows, <laughs> Hogan's Heroes and Green Acres. We have some young listeners, and we implore you, Google both of those because they are truly funny shows. Thank you for that, Absolutely. Chief. <laughs> Captain, you're up. <laughs> Captain Johnson. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, I, I have lots of hobbies outside of work. I'd probably say uh, the two things I enjoy doing the most um, is I have a uh, you know, wife of 22 years and three awesome kids, 19, 17, and 11. And I just enjoy spending time with them, doing whatever I can with them. Like the chief, I don't have a lot of friends outside of work that I'm really close with that are cops. So I don't spend a lot of my time talking about work. And uh, I just enjoy hearing about my family and doing stuff with them. And uh, the other thing is family related. I, I love coaching my kids. And whether I'm coaching or I'm assistant coach, I just love spending time with them and their friends, trying to teach them different sports uh, and just, you know, helping them learn. So uh, it's all family related for me. Uh, they're what keeps me grounded and what keeps me doing what I do and uh, keeps me sane. Excellent. Now, even if we go 30 seconds over, it's going to be okay because I've got a quick follow-up question for you. Is, so what sport do you coach? Uh, right now it's deck hockey and lacrosse and uh course whatever else i can get my hands in. how 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 are the teams doing because it's all in the coach whether well, you guys do good or not how's how's the coach doing this year good my son's deck hockey team is incredible and uh i can't take all the credit for that though and uh <laughs> lacrosse uh, we do very well in lacrosse too so excellent great Sounds thank like you captain the giants are looking for a coach <laughs> <laughs> I think this year's this season's already. I don't know if there's any hope. Um, maybe they need my hope T-shirt. <laughs> Doctor Man, what are some things that you do to um, bring a smile and recharge? Uh, yeah, so I would. I'm, I really like um, um, uh, what the chief said. Um, in a way, um, I have uh, I have three kids, and um, I try to spend um, a lot more time with them than I used to. Um, I now regret that I 
in, in a way, I spent too much time at work, um, but uh, COVID taught me something. COVID caused uh, like a whole recalibration on um, how I thought about life and what mattered. Um, and after, and as it started, got it ramped up, I thought, you know, I'm going to live my life differently. And I did two things differently. Um, well, I guess two main things. One of them was I now try to spend, you know, um, a weekend with um, each of my three kids um, and kind of cycle around between them. Um, because most of my other friends, um, um, a bit like the captain, um, they all do the same thing that I do. And so talking to them is just re, re, recapitulating the stress that I'm, I'm trying to leave behind yeah. at work. So I need to seek um, um, relief somewhere else. Uh, so I, I really think that's important. Um, I spend time with the, the three kids. Uh, my wife and I go around and, uh, and spend weekends uh, rotating between them. It's been fantastic. And the other thing I do is a bit of what Jeff does. And I think exercise is great. You go out for that uh, long run and you think about all your problems and what you're going to do and uh, how you're going to fix things and uh, get new ideas and, uh, and you're making yourself healthy at the same time. It's um, really terrific. Yeah, and I, I know, Dr. Matt, you won't say, but for people listening, he's just not like a recreational runner. He's a really, really good runner, and he goes out and runs these races and seemingly wins them more times than not in triathlons too, right, Dr. Matt? Yeah, um, fantastic. And so here's my homework assignment to anybody listening, and nobody's checking, but why not think about this? Or as you heard people talking, as you heard each of us sharing them, give yourself that moment. Think about it. not everything has to be intense 24-7. Chill yourself out for a little bit. But how about this? That's not the assignment. The assignment is bringing somebody else in on it and ask them, even if it's somebody you know and live with every day, hear what they have to say. And just look, we we, we need these daily breaks. And uh, before I wrap this up, maybe I'll just throw it to each of you. We'll go around one more time. Maybe any, um, take a minute each roughly, any key takeaways that you want to share with the audience before we wrap this up. And we'll go in the order of Dr. Mann, Chief Captain, if that's all right with you gentlemen. So as I, um, as um, in competing in um, athletics, I spent a lot of time trying to get fit and also protect myself from injuries. And when I was young, I thought, you know, you know, be macho, you just push through everything. Pain is is mental, you just dominate it. Um, after I got a little smarter, I realized one of my friends is really good at sports medicine. I should consult with them. I got, a, I got some help. Um, I got a trainer. Um, everything got a way better when I learned to ask for help and talk to somebody who knew what they were doing. And that's the message here. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Chief. I would say uh, for those listening that uh, are in law enforcement, start the conversation. And if you bring somebody along, eventually we'll all uh, get there. But our goal should be to make sure that suicide is never an option for the officer. And that's our ultimate goal in this. And uh, I think we can get there, but it's going to take one person at a time. Yeah. Thank thank you very much, Chief Captain. I think the biggest thing is, uh, remember, we talked about it earlier, we're all human beings. Uh, Being a cop is just our job. That's all it is. And um, you got to be happy, enjoy life, and uh, suicide, um, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Uh, you have to enjoy your life, and just remember there's people here that love you, and uh, start that conversation. If you're going through a lot of stress, having problems right now, dealing with stuff, go talk to somebody, anybody, at least it's a start. Yeah, 
great reminder. Thank you, Captain. And the last thing I'll just say to everybody too is my my takeaway is look after each other. Look after each other, your brothers and sisters in blue, your family. Make sure the first person at the front of that line is yourself. It's not selfish. It's smart. And every single one of us, police blue or human being in this country, on this planet, we all deserve to have positive mental health. And it's a work in progress. And don't wait for the perfect day. Let today be the right day to start. And I want to thank all three of you for being here and taking the time to share this with us. I want to thank our audience for listening and just to everybody, um, well, be safe until next time. Thank you. This project was supported in whole or in part by cooperative agreement number 2017-VI-BX-K001, awarded by the U.S. Department of Justice Office of Justice Programs. And as always, the opinions contained herein are those of the speakers and do not represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice or the IACP. References to specific individuals, agencies, companies, products, or services should not be considered an endorsement by the speakers. Rather, the references are illustrations to supplement discussion of the issues. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You can visit learn.theiacp.org slash podcast to view show notes from today's episode and to find additional ways you can learn from leaders in the field.